Have you noticed that if you don't like to be humbled, you probably shouldn't read the Bible? Because even a casual reading of God's Word makes something painfully obvious. Despite clear instructions, despite continual encouragement, despite regular reminders, despite repeated warnings, God's people frequently get off track. If we were a franchise, it would be detours are us. We forget who we are, and we forget what God has called us to be and do. And when that happens, the results are always disappointing. But I trust you've also noted, not only does Scripture humble us, but Scripture encourages us. And it reminds us that when we get off track, God gets our attention, reveals where we've missed the mark, and points us back to the right road. When God is working in your life, no failure is final. You can make your failures a prelude to new growth in grace. God restores our souls. But one thing he isn't obligated to restore, he's not obligated to restore our opportunities. God can restore your soul without restoring an opportunity. Opportunities can be forfeited. Opportunities can be lost permanently. And because of that, as we begin 2018 as a local congregation, I want to revisit the marching orders that God gave us through the Holy Spirit back in 1984. Those marching orders haven't changed. They don't need to change. But we need to be sure we haven't changed. The marching orders are tucked inside a simple narrative verse found in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 14, 35 records this. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word into all that surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. 34 years ago, when we didn't know what to do, God said that if we would strive to look like Jesus, to live like Jesus, to minister like Jesus, so that people would recognize Jesus in us, lost people would come and they would bring their friends with them. And we have found that to be true now for over three decades. But Scripture also makes us aware that faithfulness in the past doesn't guarantee faithfulness in the future. Scripture is chock full of stories of people and movements that began well and finished badly. So we always need to be on guard. So today as we start into a new year, I want to remind you of what it means to look like Jesus. I've entitled this teaching, Remember Who We Are. And at various points throughout this teaching, I'm going to conclude each sub-point by saying, so remember who we are. When I do, I want you to echo that to somebody seated near you. And if you're alone, then just say it to the room in general. But when I say, so remember who we are, you turn to somebody and say, so remember who we are. If you need to take a breath mint now, knowing that that's coming, get that breath mint, 
All right, but let's practice it. Our title is Remember Who We Are. All right, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, in these coming moments, help us to remember who we are. Lord, I pray that your Spirit would enable me to declare your truth. I pray that your Spirit would enable each of us to apply that truth because there is so much at stake. Eternity is at stake. And Lord, we want to be faithful to the calling you have graciously placed upon our lives. So Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Stir up our minds by way of remembrance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And as we study God's Word together and listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit, may the Lord be with you. One of my favorite Christian writers is Marva Dawn. She wrote a book entitled Unfettered Hope. And in that book, she records an experience she had at a classical music concert. And it really sets the stage for what we're going to talk about today. She said, and I quote, Recently I was disappointed when a brilliant instrumentalist playing a concerto with the Oregon Symphony came on stage in a dazzling but extremely revealing tank top. She hadn't dressed provocatively in past appearances, so it appeared to be the act of a desperate woman. Could she no longer depend on the intense power of her music to keep the audience attentive? Did she not trust her own identity as a gifted and passionate virtuoso, end quote. Now, much like that soloist, in times of adversity, churches often lose sight of their identity. Concerned that they're being rejected or worse, ignored, worried about their relevance and their survival, fearful that they will become extinct and closed, intimidated by increasingly vocal and hostile unbelief, churches often react in the worst way possible. They forget who they are. They forget how they're to act. They lose confidence in the beauty of God's music, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then they resort to foolish ungodly measures to somehow announce their relevance and attract an audience. And when that happens in the church, and both scripture and history indicates it happens far too frequently, when that happens, the church ends up looking like something other than Jesus. The church takes on a bad look, and people don't recognize Jesus in the church. What are some of those bad looks? I just threw together a quick sample. When the church doesn't look like Jesus, it may look like a culture club. It may look like a nightclub. It can look like a museum of ancient history. It can look like an impromptu rap session. It can look like a carnival sideshow. It can look like a Christian contemporary music concert. It can look like a pep rally. 
It can look like an infomercial. It can look like an angry demonstration. It can look like a celebrity cult complete with groupies. It can look like a celebration of human arrogance. Or it can look like a political action committee at prayer. Those are all bad looks for the church. And if it adopts any of those looks, the church doesn't look like Jesus. What did Jesus look like? Let me review that with you today. First of all, Jesus was a friend of sinners. Now those who called him that meant it as a disparaging insult. But it actually was a wonderful affirmation of who he was and why he came. Jesus made it a point to hang with broken people who needed his power unleashed in their life. He hung out with addicts and hookers and the hated and the despised and the poor and the criminal element. And he wasn't concerned that hanging out with them would compromise who he was. He wanted them to discover who he wanted them to be. Jesus knew the difference between separation and isolation. And it's important that we know the difference. God calls believers to come out and be separate. And when he does that, what he is saying is, I don't want you to buy into the world's value system. I don't want you to buy into the ways of ungodly culture. I don't want you believing the fake news. I don't want you pursuing the idols that are pursued by an unbelieving society. I want you to come out and be separate. I want you to march to the beat of a different drummer. I want you to swim upstream in a downstream world. Come out and be separate. But God never calls the church to be isolated. God never calls us to disassociate ourselves from the people who need to hear about Jesus. Because if we isolate ourselves from the people who are suffering from the fake news, suffering from the idolatries, suffering from the false belief systems, they will likely never see Jesus. So remember who we are. Uh, that's about a three. Well, let's do better next time, all right? Remember who we are. Intentionally involve yourself in the lives of people who don't know Jesus. And let me give you a practical way to do that. I want to encourage you this week to make a list of between five to ten people who are in your sphere of influence, neighborhood, work, friendships. Five to ten people who don't know Jesus. Then I want you to pray for them by name every day. And ask God to draw them to himself and to give you opportunity to speak to them about the gospel. Now, I guarantee you, if you do that, you will see results. For one thing, we look for what we pray for. And if you aren't looking for any of your friends to come to Jesus, it's because you aren't praying for your friends to come to Jesus. But if you pray for your friends to come to Jesus, you'll start looking for your friends to come to Jesus. So just five to ten people, you pray daily, and then you start looking for God to answer prayer and give you opportunity. And then when he does, remember, it's not up to you to save them. It's just up to you to bear witness 
to the gospel and to what God has done in your life so that he can use that to draw them unto himself. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Secondly, Jesus was full of grace and truth. And I think John was very careful about the order. It's important. If you've noticed in his encounters with the corrupt religious aristocracy that weren't open to change, Jesus spoke sharp-edged truth. But whenever Jesus was dealing with broken people who were hungry and looking for change, he always led his encounter with them with grace and then followed it up with truth. Perfect example, the woman caught in adultery. What did Jesus say? I don't condemn you. That was pure grace. But then he said, now go and sin no more. That was truth. He was saying, you don't need to look for your significance between the sheets anymore because what you're looking for is standing right in front of you. Your heart isn't hungering for yet another man who will use you. Your heart is youngering, hungering for a God who wants to indwell you. Grace and then truth. Why is the order important? People will not embark on a journey to live differently if they can't first imagine it happening. None of us will embark on a journey if we aren't convinced the journey's got to be successful. People have to be able to imagine themselves being loved by God, being accepted by God, and living for God before they'll attempt to love God, be accepted by God, and live for God. And when we show people grace, we fire and fuel that imagination. Because when we're gracious, that helps them to believe that God will be gracious with them. And grace disarms the fears and the angers and the doubts and the pains and the bitterness that keeps many people at arm's length from God and the healing they need. Now, I know that we're watching truth being eroded and compromised in our culture. The reality is our culture is tolerant of everything but truth. But if we let our concern over that compromise lead us to just declare truth without showing grace, if we give people the impression they have to be perfectly behaved before they can belong, then we will be violating the very truth that we're protecting. Jesus led with grace, and we have to as well. This needs to be a place where messy people are loved on and welcomed. Because let's be frank, we're all a hot mess. Some of us just have Jesus cleaning up our mess. So remember who we are. And lead with grace. Now you're getting it. Third, Jesus was a servant. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve and give his life. And toward that end, Jesus laid aside so many of the things our culture obsesses over. He laid aside comfort, big time. He laid aside convenience. He laid aside safety. He laid aside control. He laid aside privilege. He laid aside his life. And to follow Jesus, we have to follow suit. We can't approach the church as consumers. 
we've got to quit asking, what will the church do for me? Because that's very unlike Jesus. And we have to begin to ask, what, by God's grace, can I do for the church, for the lost, and for the world? We need to remember who we are and choose the path of a righteous servant rather than a religious consumer. And along that line, when you're looking for a church, follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, not the five-star rating on Google. There is just something sick about rating churches on Google the same way you rate a tire company, a doctor, or your favorite restaurant. Really? Really? You see what that appeals to? I want the trendy place. I want the church that's hot now. It, it appeals to religious consumers who are spiritual midgets. Don't be a religious consumer. Be a righteous servant. The church where God wants you may not get a five-star rating but it may be the church where God wants you. Fourth, Jesus was passionate about justice. Isaiah said the Messiah will be, and Jesus verified that in Matthew 5. He said, don't think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't. I came to fulfill them. Now, if you've read the law and if you've read the prophets, you know they were passionate about pursuing justice. Now, justice is a two-sided word. To do justice is to do two things. Attack the things that destroy life in a community and add the things that bring God's shalom, blessing, and health to a community. When we bought the local nuisance bar so that we could close it down, so that the neighborhood could be free of that influence, we were attacking an evil. When we helped to start a Women's Choice Network and a Christian Medical Center and other ministries, we were adding the things that bring God's shalom to a community. You attack the evil, you add the good. That's what it means to do justice. And people who are passionate for justice don't drive past needy communities and thank God they don't live there. Nor do they engage in drive-by compassion where they blow into the neighborhood for half a day, give out a few goodies, then return to their good life, reminding the people who live here that their life sucks. I hate drive-by compassion. It's cheap. And it's a substitute for justice. Justice sees the needs of others as its own assignment. If they are disadvantaged and broken... That's where Jesus wants to be, and that's where the church should be. See, Micah 6.8 calls us to do justice and walk humbly. God pairs those two things together, and I think there's a clear inference in there. If you aren't pursuing justice, you aren't walking humbly, you're walking arrogantly. You're only thinking about yourself and your own. Now, somebody might say, Micah 6.8, that's Old Covenant. Yeah, it's Old Covenant, but Paul echoed it almost word for word in Colossians 3.12. So go away with that argument. 
You see, if we aren't pursuing justice, we aren't walking humbly. We're limping selfishly. And selfishness always leaves you with a limp. Now, a caution is needed here. Doing justice is not a substitute for declaring the gospel. It's trendy now to do justice but not declare the gospel. That is a horrible mistake, and that does not look like Jesus. Evangelism without justice initiatives is like a soul without a body. But justice initiatives without evangelism is like a body without a soul. One's a ghost, the other's a corpse. Neither one is what God wants. Do we want to feed the hungry? Yes. But we don't want them well fed on the way to hell. You see, if you focus on the implications and the outworkings of the gospel and lose the gospel, you will also eventually lose the outworkings and the implications, and you'll be left with nothing, with nothing. A church that looks like Jesus helps people at their felt need and helps people recognize their greatest need. I grew up hearing that it's not enough to know about Jesus, you have to know Jesus, and that's right. And in Jeremiah twenty-two sixteen, God said, to know me is to plead the cause of the needy. And in Proverbs 29, God said, the righteous are concerned for the rights of the poor. The wicked don't understand such concern. See, it's not social action or gospel, it's the gospel producing social action. So, remember who we are and pursue justice. Fifth, Jesus refused to observe ungodly divisions. He attacked them. Throughout history, fallen humanity and its pride and rampant insecurity has divided along any and every fault line, everything from pigmentation to politics. And those are the two biggies in our culture right now. Jesus refused to honor those distinctions. He crossed gender barriers, ethnic barriers, economic barriers, historic barriers, political barriers, and social barriers. He said, my kingdom is open to anybody who wants to cross the threshold, anybody who will believe. That's why the people who benefited from division because it kept them in power saw Jesus as a threat. And you see, there are always people who benefit from division, and that's true in this culture. There are people who want American citizens hating one another because it feeds into their ungodly agenda. Don't be a fool for their agenda. Psalm 133 says, Where believers dwell together in unity, there God commands blessing. That means you can't miss it. But that word dwell together doesn't mean sit together in a sanctuary. The word dwell in Hebrew speaks of hard grit and grace, intentional, persevering effort, guarding the unity of the Spirit day and night and night and day. So remember who we are. And as the world grows increasingly polarized and increasingly tribal, and as people hunker down with their own, embrace kingdom diversity. And I use the term kingdom diversity because while the kingdom is open to anyone, 
not every person, belief, or lifestyle will be accepted in the kingdom. Remember, heaven has boundaries. And, and, and I never have understood the people who, who, who think God is awful because, because heaven has boundaries. Look, if somebody doesn't want God in this life, why would God torment them with his presence for eternity? Hell is an expression of God's kindness. And the suffering isn't God doing. The suffering is what you do to yourself when you reject God. If you hold your breath, you turn blue. Don't blame the atmosphere. Finally, Jesus relied completely upon the Holy Spirit. Isaiah said he would. Jesus' activities affirmed that. He didn't start his ministry till the Spirit came on him at his baptism. Then he was led by the Spirit to be tempted. He said, I only say what the Spirit tells me to say. I only do what the Spirit tells me to do. I cast out demons by the finger of God, a term for the Holy Spirit. New Testament tells us by the Spirit he offered up his life. By the Spirit he was resurrected. And we are called to be like Jesus. If Jesus didn't attempt to do ministry without the empowering and the filling of the Holy Spirit, how can you and I do ministry without the empowering and filling of the Holy Spirit? In a church that looks like Jesus, the only plans that matter are the plans revealed by the Holy Spirit. In a church that looks like Jesus, the only strategy that is acceptable is the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why my passion, I don't want to build a church that pleases builders, boomers, Xers, or millennials. I want to see a church that pleases the Holy Spirit. I don't want to cater to some niche audience when God said, I want my kingdom for all people. Churches that only target one type of person send an unintended message that does not look like Jesus. This year as a congregation, we're going to be making huge decisions for the future. And our votes should not be based on knee-jerk reactions but bent knee petitions. God, show us your way. A lot of churches now are focusing on being tech savvy, and that's a fine tool. But it's no good to be tech savvy if you aren't spirit savvy. Because what it means is you have just a whole host of ways to broadcast your spiritual ignorance. The church needs to be spirit savvy. Then you can use tech, yeah, but if you don't have the spirit, it's much ado about nothing. So remember who we are. And rely entirely upon the Holy Spirit. Friends, God has called us to look like Jesus. Because if we don't look like Jesus, why are we here? People who attempt to recapture an audience by looking at the world fail to recognize when the church looks like the world, the church becomes totally unnecessary. If we believe what the world believes and lives as the world leaves, why waste your time? I mean, come on. The churches that have most influenced their culture 
have been the churches that have most contrasted their culture and looked like Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit said he came to draw people to Jesus. And if a church looks like Jesus, the Holy Spirit will always draw people to a church that looks like his son. Let's pray together as we close. And as we do, I want to ask a question on an individual level. Who are you? We've been talking about remembering who we are. Who are you? By that I mean, are you a follower of Jesus? Or are you a seeker who hasn't yet come to faith in Jesus? If you're a follower of Jesus, use these moments to recommit yourself to looking like Jesus. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus and God's been working, somebody's been praying, and you feel, I'm ready now, right there where you are in the quietness of your heart, you call on to the Lord. He knows your every thought. And this is really very simple. God wants to enter your life, be your Messiah, and change who you are, not so that he might love you, but because he loves you. And if you will just say, Lord, I believe Jesus is the Messiah. I take him as my Savior. Change my heart. And I will live for you and confess you before others. He'll do that in a heartbeat. And he's promised that anyone who does that, he'll respond in the positive. Father, what a privilege we have. You've called us to look like Jesus, the timeless creator of the universe, perfect in all of his ways. Lord, that's mind-blowing. By your grace and your spirit, help this local expression of your kingdom to look like Jesus so that broken people might find help, hope, and healing in him. And for anybody who prayed to receive you today, Father, I rejoice, and I pray you'd help them now to get rooted, grounded, and Lord, make them contagious. Make them carriers of the gospel to all of their sphere of influence in Christ's name. Amen. And if you did pray to receive Jesus today, stop at either information booth and ask for the map. It's just some helpful introductory material. You're on.